Will you pray with me, please? May only God's words be spoken here. And may only God's words be heard. Amen. I'm really, really glad to be here this morning with you guys. How long has it been? 18 months? About that long, eh? When John asked me a few weeks ago if I would, uh, um, about reading, when I asked John a few weeks ago about readings, he just suggested um, the, um, that I tell you a little bit of my story and my testimony this morning. And I'm not adverse to testimonies, but I always want to see them um, done in the context of worship and in, in the context of the Word. So I'm going to do that this morning. Um, speak a while about a time in my life that was a huge struggle. And, uh, but I will do it in the reference to a couple of the readings that we've heard this morning. I'm not sure about John's experience in South Africa, but the Anglican Church of Canada of yesteryear, and perhaps even the Anglican Church of Canada of today, there, there's this unspoken but clearly understood uh, process into which every candidate for holy orders is expected to fit. And it includes a, a, a rather rigid and predetermined step-by-step progression whereby one went from uh, a parishioner in a church uh, and to a leader in a church to a postulant to postulant that's a fancy word for someone who's going to get sent off to school um, to uh, a student to an intern to a deacon assistant to a assistant priest to a senior pastor or rector and perhaps even to a dean archdeacon bishop and archbishop if that was in the cards and although we knew that only a few would wear the, uh, the exalted purple, there was this assumption that every one of us could, if we played according to the rules, expect to progress through this hierarchy and eventually read the, reach the nirvana of oversight. <laughs> However, as you can see, there isn't a whole lot of room for the work of the Holy Spirit in the middle of all that process. And it's, 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 and, it, and it gets to be almost as if it's considered, considered a right and a privilege rather than a call. And therein lays the problem. Now, I mention this this morning because, that, uh, because this assumption is injected into the DNA of many of us who are called to ordination. And it wouldn't necessarily be articulated in that fashion, but it is there nonetheless. There's an expectation of advancement. And it was there in me when I first accepted this call to ministry, only I didn't really know it. I hadn't assessed uh, my motives for accepting the call critically. And that would come back to haunt me as my years in orders progressed. The trouble began uh, essentially when my assumption that I would uh, the assumption of being automatically returned to the West Coast and the Diocese of British Columbia from which I had been sent, uh, that assumption didn't come to fruition. Instead, God sent me to this small, rural, struggling Saskatchewan farm town, farming community, uh, who had fallen in hard times, 
and who uh, were desperately in need of a pastor who would care and encourage them back into kingdom ministry. However, there was always this sense of temporariness in my presence and an assumption in my own heart that God had actually called me to bigger and better things and that this was just a stepping stone on the way. I looked at the passage from the gospel lesson that you just heard from Luke 10 and verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. And I acted as if it didn't really apply to this congregation in Leask, but that the Lord must necessarily be grooming me for bigger and better things in another place. I mean, that was a horribly inappropriate thing for me to be doing and thinking. I mean, it wasn't conscious. It was just there. And it was an abusive way for me to treat that congregation. I began to cast around for something bigger to fulfill my insatiable desire for recognition. And I knew that there were many in the military from which I had come who were in need of the gospel. And so I convinced myself that my past experience in the Navy was a God thing. It was a horrible time, but it was still a God thing. And that he was now setting me up for this new and exciting ministry as a military chaplain. So I joined the reserves, and then I went in the regular force. And um, uh, I, what I wasn't willing to admit in this so-called process of discernment that I was in was that I really had this selfish desire to be an officer with all the privilege and the recognition that came with it. I hadn't read, or I probably haven't hadn't apprehended, you know, the rest of those verses from the Luke passage that we heard this morning. You know, the ones where it speaks about being sent out about a, as a lamb among the wolves or about being broke or poor and hungry but gracious so where we have to beg for a meal and a bed and mix with the lepers and the fevered and be run out of town because you're hated because you said something that made somebody angry. You know, none of those things really applied. Somehow I had missed all that part, and after all, I was this, I was a priest. And um, I deserved to be respected and upheld, or so I thought. And again, I wouldn't have articulated that kind of arrogance, but it was there nonetheless. You need to know that Satan is alive and well in the lives of all who give him access, even if they do it unintentionally. And I was no exception. You know, when, we, when you play at being a pastor or you play at being a leader, even if you play at being a Christian, we open a door and we allow the evil one access to our lives. And when that happens, we become diverted from the true path uh, that God has set us upon and sent down a diversion which may in many respects be parallel and even look righteous and holy, but is really the road to perdition. That's another fancy word for hell. Um, and I was on that road. How many of you have boats? You know, people have boats. You've been around boats for a while. I, uh, I'm a sailor and I have a boat. And you have a compass on that boat, right? Um, what happens when you make an error of even three or four degrees and then travel ten miles? 
Mathematicians, how far apart are you from where you're supposed to be after 10 miles? A long way. A long way. You end up miles off course and in a world of hurt, especially if the fog rolls in. We live in Euclid, you know, I would go out fishing, and you know how the fog bank kind of rolls out in the morning, in the daytime. And then you're out there and you're having a good time in the sunshine, and all of a sudden you get this chill up the back of your neck and the fog rolls over the top of you. And if you don't know where you are at the moment that happens, what you are in a big trouble. Well, um, the journey of faith and a call to ministry is just like that. Sometimes because of our sin, we get shoved a couple of degrees off course. And at first it doesn't seem as if anything's wrong and it all looks and feels the same. But one day we find ourselves um, with the fog rolling over us or on the rocks. I used to work Coast Guard Auxiliary and um, it's amazing how many people you have to rescue because they thought they were somewhere else. Um, And it's not a new story. It's one that's... It's been around for hundreds and thousands of years, but it's really evident in our church today and in some of the people that are leading it today. So I was off course, and I was, but I was able to hide it. Um, many, because many of the others that I associated with, they were all caught up in the same process. Haggai speaks of it symbolically in this morning's Old Testament reading. It says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins, or my house lies in ruins. Now, this was a place of privilege an assumption that somehow because we had been set apart by God we were owed something, deference, position just because we were pastors and just because we were military officers and many, I chief among them were paneling our own houses as it were as, uh, while the Lord's house actually lay in ruins and it, I look good on the outside but as far as Jesus affirms in, the Matthew, in Matthew 23 and verse 1 I was really um, I didn't give you that one did I? Now, I, I, I was really better, little better than a whitewashed sepulchre. You know, the outside of the cup was clean, but the inside was filthy, dirty. And I talked the talk, and I did all the right things, but I never seemed to accomplish anything more than maintaining the status quo. And the prophet, again, speaks about that this, um, in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes in it. The same attitude about presumption and about promotion and progress that is so much a part of the Anglican Church of Canada was not only evident, it was amplified in the military context. It wasn't all bad. I had a lot of great experiences in the military as a chaplain and I did manage to bring the love of Christ into a number of broken lives in spite of myself. And God used me where I was and he employed the gifts that he had raised me up to to use for ministry in order to see his work accomplished regardless of whether where I was really in my walk with him or my journey of faith. And, and for that I give a humble thanks. I can't imagine how much damage I, I could have done if the spirit wasn't working in and through and over me in that period of time. Still, I always wonder what would have been accomplished if I had been walking intentionally and purposefully in his will instead of my own. And I'm convinced now that God did not want me there, but he did use my disobedience for good. However, the Lord is also consistent 
in the way that he deals with his creation, particularly the, those he sets apart for leadership. Uh, those he calls his shepherds. And he warned me, I can remember reading this Haggai passage and thinking, well, that's not me, that couldn't possibly be being applied to me. And I also listened to the woe passages in Matthew 23 and believed that they applied to other people. After all, I did all the right things. I looked like a righteous man. I acted holy. Some people got saved under my ministry. But the Lord said to me, Woe, you scribe, you Pharisee, you hypocrite, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters. He was telling me that I was a blind Pharisee. And that I needed to clean the inside because the, the outward appearance of clean was nothing more than a mirage. The Lord was also speaking the words of Ezekiel 34 to me. And he was telling me to relent from feeding myself and my own ego while the sheep suffered. I, I can look back on this stuff now. I, I had these passages marked in my Bible. God said, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, you do not feed my sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you have not sought with, and with force and harshness, you have ruled them. And all the while I was saying, not me, Lord, that's not me, that doesn't, belong, that doesn't apply to me, this is somebody else you're talking to, who should I cast around to tell this prophecy to? But the Lord is also, he's predictable in his faithfulness and he's predictable in the way he behaves. And so he acted. And while I was on deployment in Bosnia, which was to be the star in my crown, you know, getting overseas, doing ministry in a place that's tough, you know, like get a little dong to go with it, you know. I had a heart attack. The official decision was that um, it was stress related, but there was no blockage. My cholesterol was pretty much normal. I, uh, I was in the best physical shape that I'd been in years. I was running five miles of the day. I was in the gym two or three times a week. However, I was struck down. And in a moment, just like that, my military career ended. Everything that I built up for myself in defiance of God's will was destroyed in an instant. God said, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And I was lying on my back in a mash tent in Zagreb. I was, I was angry and I was cursing the Lord. I, I just, I couldn't understand why God had done this to me. And, you know, I can read this passage now and I can understand clearly what happened and I can understand why it had to happen. But at the time, I just absolutely railed against God and the injustice of it all. You know, the Lord just, he just took all that anger in, just received it. He knew I was going to get mad, which is cool. Um, uh, uh, and, and then, and then he, he put me in a situation where 
the control of my life and the control of my future was given over into the hands of others that he trusted, even if I didn't. I, I wasn't guarding the gate of the sheep pen any longer. I was in the pen. I was still a pastor and uh, I still had the privilege to assist some people in ministry. Uh, but for three and a half years, I had absolutely no significant control over my life whatsoever. Uh, actually, uh, is a funny story. One of the things that I had to do during that time is I had to work part-time. And so I, I you know, what, what the military guys do when they come out and they haven't got a job? They become commissioners. Who said that? Right, exactly. So um, I, 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 I became a commissioner and I did some hosp- uh, hospital things and some airport things. But uh, at Christmas that first year, there was, a, there was a scare because some people didn't think we should be eating turkey, so they were injecting the turkeys, right? So guess what I had to do? I had to go to the grocery store and guard turkeys. <laughs> I think there's some poetic justice in that, don't you? And of course, my parishioners would come along. I was, in this, I was kind of assisting in this church, and they would come along, and they'd see me, and they'd do this little kind of, what are you doing? And then they'd look down, and they'd start to laugh. Like, and I says, yeah, it's just like ministry, really, you know. But during that time, God brought me uh, people alongside me, lay people, ordained people, who taught me how to listen. They, they taught me how to release the stuff that I held so close to my chest. They taught me how to be vulnerable. They taught me how to trust. Because I, never, I grew up in a broken family. So a lot of those things, being vulnerable, trusting, letting stuff go, being teachable... You know, it was mostly in my life up to that point had been all about keeping control so no one could hurt me. And I had to learn um, uh, how to completely depend on God by learning how to completely depend on other people. Some of whom, most of whom, all of whom were imperfect as well and made mistakes. None of that stuff was a part of my seminary training, and I now know that I was actually too young in the faith when I went to seminary. Uh, I, I shouldn't have been there in the first place. And I look back, and, and, and it's funny how you get to that place this late in the process, but I look back and I wonder how I ever got as far as I did in my own strength and with my own sinful agenda in place. And I can only believe that the God of the universe had a plan way back then. Uh, Jeremiah 29 says, you know, a plan to not to harm you. you know? but I, so I, he had a plan for me way, way back then. Um, and he was willing to see me fail and to fall in order to create a space in my life into which uh, he could send the Holy Spirit to mold me into the man after his own heart that he wanted me to be so that his, his real plan for my life could be realized. I also learned this very valuable lesson about God's timing. Um, if somebody came to you that had a heart attack about three months ago, would you hire him? If you were an employer, would you hire someone who just had a heart attack? No. Well, they wouldn't. Um, uh, uh, the, people didn't want a pastor with a heart condition. And 
place where I, where I sought to control my life and look for a new Closer to the end of my time of uh, Reformation, I believed that I knew the mind of God. I to move on and not fight for Duncan. Um, and I was kind of destroyed about it, and uh, but I, 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 I knew what it was. And I didn't really know how to deal with that. I went to this prophetic conference.
down a notch when we get diverted into our own agendas. Uh, this, this really is God's word. And when, when, when he calls the shepherds to task for, for feathering their own nests instead of seeking the lost and the broken, that call is, is it's directed as much at us today as priests and pastors and elders and leaders in the church as it was to the, to, uh, 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 to the teachers of the law and the, in the days of the prophets. And thirdly and finally, there's no hierarchy other than that which the Lord purposes. Yes, we have different callings, and yes, we have different functions, but they are not stacked up in the order of importance. We who have been called to leadership in whatever capacity, be it lay or ordained, have no right to advancement or to expect a greater degree of deference or respect than anyone else. This, we are a body of Christ and we're all called, as Paul says, to minister as a body to the broken and the lost in our communities. There's no ladder to or in the kingdom and no special rooms or places of privilege set aside for leaders. There's just a greater degree of responsibility and if the Bible is to be believed, also a greater degree of judgment. The crown of glory that the Apostle Peter speaks about is given only to those who have been faithful servants of God's grace and mercy to the flock. Peter said this to them. So, I exhort you, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that God of God that is among you exercising oversight so he does call people to to be in that position of authority and responsibility but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain not for your own ego but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock Now, there is a part of me that really wishes that I had learned this lesson earlier on in the game. But I didn't. And I can only hope and pray that those who are called to leadership among us will not have to be honed and shaped in the same ways that I did or your pastor did, you know, in our our journeys. Because I've got to tell you, it's painful. It's really, really painful. So my prayer is that those of you who might be feeling a call to leadership now, in whatever capacity, will get that at the beginning so that God doesn't have to slap you up the side of the head like he did me. But here's the thing. When God calls, when he, when he puts his hands on leaders, he doesn't waste, doesn't waste it. He may take us down for a minute. He may take us, put us down for a little bit of while, a little while, in order to teach us a lesson, in order to wake us up, in order to, to reform and remake and remold us. But he, but he, my experience is he always lifts us back up again. And I give thanks to God for that. Will you pray with me?
Father, I give thanks. Time and time and time again, as you think of that. I'm just going to in discussion and raise them up again. Lord, did you do that one? Help us to walk with integrity and righteousness and holiness before you. Lord, have your way with us. Have your way completely with us. And we just thank you for your faithfulness.